Welcome to Emotional and Spiritual Well-Being, the podcast that balances psychology and spirituality, helping you achieve well-being by discussing how the mind, will, and emotions interplay with the spiritual and physical. Here is your host, Sharon Wegman. So good morning. This is Sharon Wegman from Wellspring Solution in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I'm here with my intern, Kate Byler, and we're going to be talking about manipulation in parenting and how to not do that. Uh, as I said, I'm a licensed professional counselor here in Pennsylvania, in why I'm missing Pennsylvania. And uh, Kate, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm an intern here at Wellspring Solutions. Um, I'm finishing up my master's program at Jefferson University where it is focused on trauma and community trauma, that meaning um, trauma individually in people's lives or community trauma could be anything from when a hurricane hits or if you've lived in poverty. And so integrating some of that here, but yeah, just getting an experience of what it's like to be at a private practice and enjoying doing these podcasts. Yeah, we both like to talk. (laughs) So. It's a good venue for True. us. <laughs> so uh, we want to talk about manipulative parenting because it's something that I see here in my practice. I see it out and about um, in a lot of settings that I am in. And we want to just talk about what it does to your kids when you do use manipulation and why you're doing it and how to stop it. Um, For most people, I think being a parent is a very triggering thing because they feel so powerless to try and take this little baby person Mm -hmm. and bring them to successful adulthood in the healthiest way possible. So there's a lot of pressure on parents to impact their children in a healthy way Mm -hmm. and to make it a safe, nurturing environment. And so many people are so worried about making the same mistakes that maybe their own parents made. Right. That is just an emotionally charged thing from the get-go. Right. Or just trying to maintain only the safety part for your child, then that turns into just either being too protective or too controlling. It's like maybe part of it means well, but then it can be turned into something else if not handled correctly or taken the time to be self-aware. It's true. So of all the things you can do in life, it's the scariest. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also the most fulfilling. Um, So I think as a result of really understanding that parenting itself can be very traumatic based on our own childhood Mm -hmm. and the things going on in our world around us, that we just thought it'd be helpful. And this was also a listener request, you know, (laughs) so if you have something that you want us to do a podcast on, give me an email at uh, wellspringsolutions.com. And uh, we'd like to try and do podcasts that are interesting to people. But I do think this is something that we see a lot in here. So, uh, number one, characteristics of successful parents that are not manipulative. Um, 
They are confident in parenting without, without being severe or authoritarian as the means of asserting their authority. Yeah, I when I think of that, I I think of a lot of um, when I think of authoritarian, I think of a lot of need for making known that you're in control or that you have power over someone, and I think that can be very much abused. So there's we were saying earlier before we were recording this that there is also authoritative. I think that's what it is, parenting, yes. which is. Um, you know, making appropriate boundaries for your kids, sticking to discipline, but not in a way that feels controlling to them or sometimes scary, depending if you're um, tend to get loud when you speak or controlling. So there is that fine line. Um, and I'm sure even if you Google authoritarian versus authoritative, they can give you it can give you a lot of descriptions on what is the difference between the two. And the more healthier one between them would be authoritative parenting. Yes. You know, and a lot of confident parenting really comes from working through our own fears. You know, we don't want to feel rejected as the parent not doing a good job. We worry about harming our children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, we're going to keep pointing you back to therapy until you go to therapy. (laughs) 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 The idea is when you work on your issues of powerlessness, your own issues of shame, your own fears from your own childhood and things you've experienced, you're going to be a more confident parent because you are clear on when it's your stuff Mm -hmm. and when it's your child's stuff. So confident parenting really comes as a result of working on your own issues. But some people never had a good model of what good parenting looks like. And in those situations, I say... It's so important to go ahead and find a environment where you can take a class in parenting. Lots yeah. of counseling centers offer them. Lots of churches offer them. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Christian churches recommend growing kids God's way. Um, yeah. A popular one is nurturing parenting. I did a lot of that, which it's really, it's honestly older. Some of, if you do the classes, I don't know if they've updated that curriculum depending on where you are. So a lot of it is some older material. You'll know if you get a worksheet that talks about using a landline and your internet at the same time, how outdated (laughs) it is. But it has a lot of good material about um, what it means to set boundaries and even like certain phrases I think that parents use all the time that don't we don't even think about so like I'll love you like mommy loves you so much when you clean your room like Mm. that can feel manipulative to the kid and it's you're like why but those classes and stuff really break it down and tell you why your kid might receive it a certain way and what it might leave them feeling It's true. Uh, Boundaries in parenting. I mean, there's so many books out there on parenting. Read them. Take a (laughs) class. Work on your issues so your issues aren't coming out so that you can be confident in your parenting instead of powerless, which will only cause you to be very authoritarian. Uh, Number two, clear and consistent in your expectations. I'll have a lot of parents who are not clear in what the what's going to happen or creating like structure and the kids create creates a lot of instability in their parenting. 
Yeah, I've seen a lot um, working in agencies, and I when I was teaching even a class in in the prison on parenting that there was a very like large extreme of either like there's no expectations at all true um where it was hard then to bring the kid focus the kid back in on what was important for them or it was so high expectations that it couldn't be met and there was that inconsistency right so clear and consistent expectations might be I need the kitchen to be, I need you to unload the dishwasher by five o'clock today. Mm -hmm. If you do not unload the dishwasher by five o'clock today, you're going to have to be, receive some kind of a consequence. Um, But that's, you're telling them what you need. You're Mm -hmm. giving clarity on when it needs to happen by, and you're telling them what's the consequence if it does not happen. Then it becomes their choice. Yeah. It's their choice. I'm giving them tr- room to make mistakes mm-hmm. and understand that my mistakes cause uh, consequences as opposed to, um, why aren't you doing the dishwasher? I told you to do the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. If you don't do the dishwasher, that's where we're shifting into powerless parenting. And it's it's just not clear. So... I need you to clear the dishwasher by 5 o'clock today. If you don't clear it today, this will be the consequence. Yeah. Uh, When my children were younger, I wrote down lists of what needed to be done before they left the house to go do friends or what needed to be done for the rest of the day. Um, and there's there was general consequences to it, but I just created clarity of what needed to be done and there was just consistency by constantly writing it down. Well, but then I'm, I'm micromanaging them. No, you're setting clear and consistent expectations. Number three, treat your children with respect, despite how angry, angry or frustrated they are feeling. <laughs> yeah, I think this is probably really hard for everyone, <laughs> no matter what type of parenting you grew up with. Um, just if you're, I don't know, like your kids deserve the same respect. And for some reason that like an adult or that you would want. And for some reason, I think that's really hard for parents to be okay with sometimes, um, because you are the one taking care of them. You're the one giving them food, putting clothes on their back, and you are in charge of them, and they should respect you. So for some reason, that line or that realization is that they deserve that respect, too, is really hard for some parents to swallow. It's true. So what does that look like? Um, They're freaking out. They're angry. I might say to them, you're making me very upset right now. I'm going to walk away and I'm going to come back and continue this conversation when you're calm. Um, I might say, you're very angry right now. I'm not sure this is a good time to have this conversation. Why don't you go take a break and then we can continue this when you can have more words because I don't make good conversation when I'm angry. Mm -hmm. But I want them to be able to say to me, you're making me feel powerless. I feel like you're you're making you're you're confusing me. You're making me very upset because you didn't tell me this until now. That's mm-hmm. fair. Mm-hmm. That's fair stuff. And right. so I've taught my kids to be able to say that kind of stuff to me. And 
for me to be able to receive it. It's fair for them to tell me how they're experiencing me. Yeah, I think sometimes, too, kids need kind of direction. They don't really know what they need. So even by doing that, as parents, you're teaching them to name an emotion, I'm feeling frustrated, and then teaching them, maybe when I'm frustrated, I need space. And so helping them realize that, too, instead of just saying something like, I don't know, just go with you, just go to your room or, or I, instead of saying, I can't deal with you like this, say, you're very frustrated right now. This isn't working. I think we both need to take some space. I think you'll feel better instead of making it about their, their emotion is making you feel frustrated. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I think that's where we really need to teach our children an emotional language at a very young age. And what that looks like is we are helping them name their feelings before they know it. You might you you need to have a 2-year-old to be able to say you're making me feel very frustrated right now. You need a 3-year-old to be able to say I'm I'm getting very angry right now. You need them to be able to use words otherwise they're going to act it out. Um, so the idea is we, we're, we're empowering them to have a verbal language. So by the time um, we're needing them to be treated with respect about, <laughs> despite how angry and frustrated they are, they're going to be able to know the emotional math. I'm feeling very powerless. That makes me want to yell at you. So I need to take a break. They need to have be learning emotional math at the time from the time they're very young. And we need to help them learn that math. Mm-hmm. Number four, remain verbally and physically affectionate throughout the teen years. Gosh. Yeah, I think this is really important only because I work with a lot of teenagers and I can see the difference of teens that have physical and verbal affirmation from their parents, from the ones that don't. Mm -hmm. And a lot of teens really do associate a lot of their worth, whether they are able to state it or not, based on if their parents can be affectionate towards them or if they're good enough, I should say. If, like, you know, teens just don't enjoy stating or don't know how even stating how much they appreciate something but the teens that come in and are able to verbalize that yeah it was really cool when my mom was proud of me when I did this or when we spent the day together and it was her that initiated they're able to vocalize that a lot more and see that they're enough as opposed to the teens that come in here and say yeah I haven't really hung out with my parents in a while or I did this and no one noticed. So it's hard because they can't really talk about how it affects them. So they don't, yeah, they really don't have the words to even describe it. And they don't even know it's affecting them or not affecting them. But we can see it. So that, that means we create habits of interaction. We go out to breakfast once a week with one kid. Mm -hmm. We sit and watch a show with another kid we, we, so we fill their love language with time. Mm-hmm. We fill their love language with, I would like to give you a hug. Can I give you a hug? 
right. we ask them, mm-hmm. you know, don't yell at them because they don't want to give you a hug, but we're continuing <laughs> to ask them, can I give you a hug? Mm-hmm. Right. We're again giving them boundaries over their own personal body. Right. Uh, we are looking for anything we can affirm them for. So we're can filling their love tank. We mm-hmm. buy little little tiny gifts for them, even if it's their favorite candy. Remember, we they all have they have love languages. So we need to continue to be filling their love tanks, even though they act like they don't want it. Right. They do. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't even know if they're going to admit it that they do. No. And they probably and they probably won't admit it that they appreciated it when you do it. So just be prepared for that. <laughs> kind of go into that one without <laughs> right. expectations. They're, they're not going to appreciate it. It's just how it. their brain is. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. It's part of learning that for them, particularly for teenagers, between the ages of like 13, 14, and... 23 mm-hmm. <laughs> they're very self-focused and they're learning to develop who they are separate from their parents so allowing their parents to give to them while it's still important to their development and they don't even know it is sometimes hard for them to understand how am I separate though mm-hmm. so it's just part of them developing that's part of their development but we should not be offended if they don't appreciate it um, so if you don't know what your child's love language is, go on our website, web, wellspringsolutions.com, go into our resource page, and we have the love language test in there. It's an inventory. You can fill it out for your child. You could possibly have your child fill it out for them, but you probably would know what they mm-hmm. would like because you've been around them for a long time. Um, But that's important to know so that you can be not just verbally and physically affectionate to them, but expressing the love that they continue to need, but they pretend they don't need. Yeah. I have case after case after case that's come through my office over the years in which parents stop being physically affectionate, particularly if they're a man with their daughter who is developed because they feel like it makes their daughter feel uncomfortable. And case after case after case, I just say, you have to continue to hug her. You have to continue to spend time with her. Yes, you used to lay on the bed, but that doesn't mean you go in, you can, you go in and you sit on the floor mm-hmm. and you sit and you talk with her. You do the habits you used to do with her because that was your love language with you. So, so important to remain verbally and physically affectionate throughout the teen years. Mm-hmm. Um, number five, um, are you emotionally accessible to your children? Oof. <laughs> this is a, I think this is a heavy one because I think it can go in different ends where you can have walls up and, and be like, I'm the parent, so you can't really see me be weak. Um, and so that would make it hard for, I think, the kid to come to you um, with what's going on with them because you might seem hard or it can be on the other opposite end where you are actually telling your kid all of your junk and then your kid can't be emotional with you as the parent because they're taking on all your stuff. So there has to be that happy medium where you're able to be a real person and vulnerable but not giving your kid all of the things you're going through either and creating this atmosphere where your child does feel comfortable coming to you with issues because you're not a robot, but coming to you with the issues too, but also because 
all of your issues aren't displayed for your kid to see. Yeah, so it's think really hard. It is really hard. I My rule of thumb is if it's in the current, you're not discussing it with your child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything that's currently going on with you emotionally, you can say I had a rough day, but you're not discussing in detail with your child right. what that is. Yeah. And another adult is going to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's helpful for your children to have emotional math to understand you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when... This happened when I was a child, and it made me very perfectionistic. Um, It helps them understand how you got to be who you are, because sometimes I think parents are fearful of telling their children their own emotional trauma or their own emotional experiences because it's going to look bad on the grandparents or something like that. But the reality is, it's what your your children need to understand about you because you have certain things that you do repeatedly mm-hmm. and they have they're developed as a result of your own childhood right okay so rule of thumb if it's happening in the present you are allowed to say a blanket statement like i'm having a difficult time right now but i'm talking to someone about it you're allowed to label what's happening but you're not Mm -hmm. allowed to discuss it with them because that's parentifying them and putting them in the role of Mm -hmm. caretaker we don't want that past issues in your childhood that create who you are that is helpful for them to understand and I've seen many children become much more compassionate and empathetic in understanding their parents when they understand who what made their parents who they are right um, number six, good sense of humor and can laugh at yourself. Yes, this is very important, especially if, even if it's like something little, like you, even if you like nagged your child and you thought they didn't do something when they actually did, like apologize and laugh it off, like, ah, oh, uh, moms make mistakes too. <laughs> Anything to, you know know that you're also a fun human and not stressed all the time (laughs) um and yeah I think it's just really important to have your kids see that you can laugh at I think laugh at yourself too like really just laugh at yourself that it's not always super serious in the house and you can have fun with them but yeah I think it's super important that as parents you can laugh at yourself and show them that we make mistakes, but it doesn't have to be so life-altering or depressing or serious all the time. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think I think it's so important to, when you do make a mistake, to be able to share that and laugh it off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I purpose to tell my kids the crazy things that happen to me, of which there are many. Um, and I purpose to tell them so that they can understand life is neither all good nor all bad. It's just part of life, and you can laugh it off, and it's going to be okay. I'm modeling to them the idea that life is not all good or bad. Right. And that it's okay to laugh at yourself or purpose to tell them stories in which I did other similar stories that, were, that are laughable now. Yeah. So in that we all do kind of like, for lack of a better term, stupid things that 
or just like I just remember one time growing up my dad just got like a pair of new sunglasses or something and you know sunglasses cost money and I have a repetition for losing things to this day and he put them on the roof of his car and drove off and they were shattered <laughs> so he left them on the roof but he was able to laugh about it and realize okay I waste money too <laughs> and it just made me feel better that like okay I'm not you know, the only one with this issue or we were able to laugh about other things that, you know, ha, ah, this runs in our family. <laughs> or we we misplaced things and things like that. And it just, I don't know, it made me feel better that I wasn't the only one doing that in the family. It's even. true. Um, number seven, never punish unfairly and never demean ch children by treating them as inferiors. Um, so... I feel like a lot of parents, when they are punishing, do a lot of shaming, condemnation, mm -hmm. guilting. Like, I feel like a lot of parents launch into huge lectures and shaming sessions when they're punishing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... For some reason, more in our, like, nature to just go in that direction. And that's probably what we've been taught the majority of people, I would say. Not everyone. But I would say a lot of people, that's how we've been taught. That you, if you can think of a time when you were punished by your parents, you probably felt, felt pretty inferior. I mean, I, I think that's just something we were taught. It's something that hasn't been discussed. Because for some reason, when we don't do that... It, it, for some reason in our culture, there's a stigma that you're a weak parent or something. I don't know. I think there's a cultural stigma to like needing to punish in that way that feels a little, makes your children feel a little inferior to make a point. It's true. And I see certain cultures that come in here have that as their standard of how you punish a child. Mm -hmm. You scare them into complying. Mm -hmm. Um that really creates severe perfectionism in a child very and adults because they become adults with shame issues, with perfectionism issues, with guilt issues. And we'll go through case histories of clients and we find time after time after time. Um, addicts had very shaming parents. Um, it just, we cannot stress enough mm -hmm. punishment does not need to include guilting mm -hmm. shaming just demeaning the child in horrible ways it's very very destructive to not just the child but that adult that they will eventually be right so what does that look like again if you're if you have clear and consistent expectations it's not going to be a lecture. Well, mm -hmm. this is unfortunately this is the consequence of your choice. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's we can't choose our consequences. This is the consequence of your choice. Right. I'm sorry you didn't study enough. That's unfortunately the consequence. That is that grade. Hopefully mm -hmm. you'll learn something different the next time. But instead of manipulating the child into doing a different behavior right I mean it's even like 
I think we sometimes miss the point of like educating our kids or not lecturing, but educating our kids around the decisions they make and helping them talk about it. Like, well, you know, now you got this bad grade. How do you feel? And seeing if they feel that tinge of shame about it and going into that. But it's there's just more of like a black and white. This is wrong. This is your like this is your punishment in this culture and not so much like unwilling to see how. Maybe your kid actually already feels ashamed that they got a bad grade. Sure. <laughs> and they're punishing themselves for it and talk about that. And I think the discipline and punishment can come easier out of that too. And 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 then on the opposite end of that spectrum, maybe they don't care. And why right. don't they care? Mm-hmm. They might not care on purpose because then they're in a no-win situation. You're constantly shaming me. So I'm just going to shame myself first and sabotage myself. Mm-hmm. And I, therefore, there's nothing you can say that's going to actually affect me when you go on your tirade. Right. Because I have already chosen to sabotage myself. So, you know, why don't you care? You, he, that person might not care as their way of self-protecting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Characteristic of another, number eight, successful characteristic, uh, stand your ground on points that matter. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of just goes back to being consistent, I would assume, too. And, you know, talking between you and your spouse or partner, what are the points that matter when parenting and what to stay truly consistent on so they're not going back and forth between what is their what is the child's expectation right so when my so let church like maybe at church attendance that comes up sometimes in Mm -hmm. christian homes you know and people are like demanding this child goes to their church and i'm like i don't really want that to be i want them to have a spiritual walk how they how can we access a spiritual walk if they're not getting their needs met at your current church or you know i'm like Parents, go to another church. <laughs> go to a church where that kid's going to get their needs met because it's more important for that kid to have a relationship and take care of their spiritual needs than you who is older. So, you know, sometimes people lay down the law on certain things that create a large disrespect on behalf of the child that mm-hmm. says, I have no power. And when they are powerless, what are they going to do? They're going to go behind your back. They're not going to talk to you. They're not going to be able to emotionally share their feelings because you've laid down the law on something that's bothering them, and that's not going to help the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, number nine, successful parents seek help from others when they don't know what to do. <laughs> I was... Uh, I've, Many younger moms will say, this is what's going on. What, what, do, you th- what do you think? Oh, and I'll give them ideas. <laughs> um, I'll give them ideas, and 95% of the time I'm correct. But that's just because I've been there, done that. And that's true for lots of other parents who can help you if you don't feel shameful asking for help, which a lot of parents do. They, their own fears get stirred up there. Yeah, and... I always, I've appreciated some of my friends that are parents, and I'm not a parent yet, (laughs) but they, but because they know what the field that I am in, I have actually still had 
my friends that are moms come and ask me some questions about, hey, I'm noticing this in my kid. What what do you think this is? Or what do you think this defiance is? Or they'll ask me if I think their kid has ADHD and things like that. But <laughs> I can't diagnose everyone. But, you know, it's, it's just cool because they're able to come and say, well, do you know some techniques? Or do you think, you know, there's someone my kid could talk to and things like that. And I find that really like humbling because I don't even have kids, but they're stepping out and being brave, asking someone who might have some training and something to help them with something that might be, you know, that they've never studied or heard of before. Okay. And then number 10 brings us back to our spiritual self because this podcast is all about emotional and spiritual wellness. And number 10 is seek God for answers, wisdom, and strength for parenting problems. Um, I always find when I don't try to make a decision immediately and I sit on it and I walk and I pray while I'm walking, I get a lot of answers. Um, because the discerning process is seeing and hearing and feeling and noticing things. So when I'm walking, I get a lot of answers because I'm enacting all aspects of movement. So for me, that's what I'm doing when I'm seeking God. I'm really I'm, I'm walking. I'm getting answers by just engaging in the seeing and hearing and, and uh, feeling out my environment. Uh, I ask other people help, and I'm always looking for creativity. I don't want to, I want, because I want to do it differently than I want. I don't know what to do as a parent, so I'm looking for creativity. Yeah, and when I, like, read this, I hear, find time to get away to be by yourself, to think clearly, spend some time meditating with God, and be able to, like, have space to think because I think a lot of these unhealth I think that a lot of the unhealthy characteristics can also come from just going 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 and not finding yourself again and needing space to think clearly so and part of being a successful parent is also understanding that you need some self-care as well as a parent it's true <laughs> it's really really true I, people are much better parents when they give themselves care, when p people are parenting on empty, you can tell. <laughs> yeah. Everyone can tell. Mm -hmm. So you're right. You do really need to do a lot of self-care. Yeah. So those are our 10 characteristics of successful parenting. Um, we gave you like lots of different ideas to think on, but, um, our next podcast is on going to be on the seven cardinal sins of parenting <laughs> because there's a lot of parents who are exasperating their children mm -hmm. and we need to help you understand what's exasperating them right it, usually these things have kind of become a habit and you don't even realize what it's actually communicating to the child okay so Check in with us again. We're going to do the seven cardinal sins of parenting in our next podcast. Thanks for listening to Emotional and Spiritual Wellbeing with Sharon Wegman. For more resources or to have Sharon speak at your meeting or event, please visit wellspringssolutions.com.